0: If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to this show, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz and get your CPE certificate. Now on to the show. From Data rails,
1: this is FPNA today.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to FP&A Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, a.k.a. The FP&A Guy, and you are listening to FP&A Today. FP&A Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We'll provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for all things FP&A. Today I am thrilled to welcome our guest Nicholas to the show. Nicholas, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Paul. Good morning.
0: Yes, good good afternoon to you. Nicholas comes to us from Germany so the time's a little bit different for him. But uh Nicholas Boucher, a few things about him. He's very active sharing best practice on LinkedIn. As of this recording, he has a following of around 90,000 followers. He currently works as a senior manager, FP&A controlling at Talos. And also prior to that, he spent time working as an auditor at PwC in both Luxembourg and Singapore. So we're really thrilled to have him on the show today. And maybe we could start off by just having you tell our audience a little bit about your background and a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Paul. So yes, I live in Germany, but I'm actually French, as uh, you could hear. Half French, half uh, Belgian. So... And uh, we live now in Germany. I have a German wife. I have kids that are raised with both languages, French and German. And uh, I lived in five different countries. So now Germany, but before I was in Luxembourg working for PDVC. As I was at PDVC, I also worked uh, in Singapore. I went two years to Singapore, one of my greatest personal and professional experience. And prior to that, so I started my career at PwC at Luxembourg. And I studied in France and I met my wife in the US where I spent one year studying. So that's a bit my background and now happy actually to to share also to all of the world, all of my knowledge on uh, on LinkedIn because there is no frontier, no border with LinkedIn. You can access to anybody. and. Uh, I would say uh, I'm a citizen of the world, and uh, happy to to share with everybody what we learned every day.
0: Great. Now, we're really excited to have you on the show. Just a couple of follow-up questions from that introduction there. So you spent a year in the U.S. Where did you study in the U.S.? or What did you study when you were in the U.S.?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was in an MBA program at ECU, East Carolina University, the city of uh, Greenville in North Carolina, where Mr. Beast uh, is from, actually. Somebody is listening and knows Mr. Beast, so same town. And uh, yeah, it was also one of the best life experience, uh, having international students, going to also to the football game of the university, also live the like, visit all of the East Coast. At the end, we finished by a uh, three weeks travel in, on the West Coast to discover... It felt like another country, actually, the West Coast. Yes, of-
0: there feels like there's more than one country in the U.S., depending on what region and where you go. I It's very different in different locations, for sure. So, cool. Now, that that sounds like a great experience. Second is Singapore. You mentioned you ended up in Singapore. How did that happen? You talked about that being a great, you know, both professional and personal experience for you. So, maybe talk just a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so, um, after three years at PwC working in audits, I had seen what is it to be a junior, what is it to be a senior. I had seen also my my industry because I was auditing mainly uh, financial services. And what is good is in those big four, they have a program where you can go and work one or two years to another office. And typically, you do that after three to five years. When you are not married yet, when you don't have kids yet, I thought it was a great opportunity to do that. And a lot of people were going to New York. But now Singapore was starting to have more and more requests because they they were growing. So um, actually went there and uh, discovered a great place, Southeast Asia is amazing. The people there are so open, so friendly, so humble as well. So for us, Western, I think it's something we can learn from. And really there, what was good professionally, is the opportunity to be exposed to big companies and to be, I was really quickly the manager of all of my audit jobs, even though I was not officially manager, but all of my managers left. So I was pushed in front as manager. So I worked with partners, I worked with CFOs and CEOs of insurance companies. And you have to imagine, uh, Singapore is more than 6 million people, and I was directly with CFOs and CEOs of insurance companies, really big, like they had to insure like a home for 3 million uh, autos or cars. So that was for me a great experience. And also to teach everything I learned in Europe to the Singaporean colleagues who were really eager to learn and open to, yeah, to change a bit. You have to learn the culture first because you have to adapt, not them, but after once you have uh, broken this barrier and you have shown an understanding for how they work. Then you can discuss and how to use the best of each culture, of each also um, uh, knowledge, because we learn differently in Europe, maybe more practical and they are more academical there. And uh, so we use that to create a a great teamwork. And personally, you know, when you are far away from your family, far away from, uh, from Europe, you create great and strong bondings with other expats there. So I made uh, some of my best friends uh, there and from different countries. I played every uh, weekend uh, with uh, Belgian people, with Germans, with Singaporean, Japanese, Swiss, French, and also the travel. The travel in Southeast Asia, you can see uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Cambodia, and the food, also food, amazing.
0: (laughs) Sounds like it was a great experience. and. You know, you had that opportunity to mention kind of running the thing. I call those battlefield promotions when everybody leaves and you're the one who kind of gets the responsibility because nobody's left, so to speak. And those are great learning experiences. I've had a few of those. So sounds like, you know, a fabulous experience. So kind of switching gears here a little bit. I know you started your career as an auditor and then you moved over into, you know, FP&A controlling area. Can you talk a little bit about that process? What led to the switch and how did that happen?
1: Yep. So I never thought that I would stay in audit all of my career. I thought I actually stayed thanks to this experience in Singapore. The fact that I broken my audit in three phases, I stayed a bit longer than I thought, but still I was always targeting to leave the audit, to go to something more operational, closer to the business. And it was actually more, I would say a personal decision with my wife that triggered this change. When we thought, okay, well, now we want to create a family. We need a better work-life balance. And uh, she got actually a job here in Germany. And as I was the one before, who already left to Singapore. So it was her turn to decide where we go. And um, then I got the opportunity to work for a French company, Thales, because I did an internship 15 years ago there. And so what happened to me is that I had to change first the job. I went from audit to uh, fp controlling. I had to change languages i went from working in french and english to working in german then i had to change industry i was working for financial services companies now i'm working for industrial and engineering company i had to change also the location i went from luxembourg to germany and i will say the last change the last big change is the culture because at PDUC or all of this before you have a certain culture for hard work, hungry people. And when you work for a bigger group, working as a contractor for uh, government uh, bodies uh, or for a yeah, big organization, it's more people stay more long term, and I would say the work life balance is also better. So it was big change, but I wanted this change.
0: That is definitely a lot to change at once, and I will agree with you. You know, having worked in kind of defense, engineering, aerospace, some of that industry, definitely a very different industry than other some of your fast-paced industries, audit, you know, small companies. I started my career in that space, not in finance, but in that space. So I can talk a little bit about that culture as well. And it's definitely different.
1: Yeah. And now that I have relieved these changes, so changing from one country to another, changing job, learning a new language, what I learned is that I need Six months to adapt. And I talk with many people who have also lived that. And you will have different phases when you change. You have first the honeymoon period where everything is great. You love the country. People are nice. So that lasts maybe one to three months. But then after three months, this honeymoon period changes. And now you don't have patience anymore. You don't have still your routine. And so you're a bit lost. You miss some things from the past. So there you are confused and you don't know if you make the right choice. And so this period lasts maybe two to three months, but if you don't know that what happens after is going to be successful and it's a part of the change to go through this acceptance and denials, then you might be really frustrated during this period. So you need to know and wait six months, that's what I learned from myself, before you judge if this change was the right move. And often, really, after six months, what happened. The language, you get really, you get better. Like you are no more in the plateau. You really reach another step. And so you can talk to everybody. You feel better about it. It's not a brain headache anymore. And then you have your routines. You know your colleagues. You have your work day. You have also your day routine. You have new friends. You have new activities. And all of that makes that your life then smoother. And then you can start enjoying it. But my advice is wait this six months before you judge. Was it really the right move?
0: I think with any big change you got to give it time cuz like you said there's an adjustment period you're going to go through different phases as you learn and figure out how to adjust you know I haven't had the experience of one learning another language I'm challenged enough to just learn English so I'm I'm good with that but I think it's great that you've done that. I think that's a real challenge. I admire people who learn a lot of different languages and you know, take those different challenges, living in different parts of the world and things like that. I think there's a lot of great learning that comes from that. And I agree with you. Any big changes you make, you need to give some time to work through it and make sure it's right. Sometimes you get in, you're like, oh, this isn't right. And you just want to pull the cord and get out. And if you give it a little longer, often it turns out to be a you know good experience. So good advice there. Speaking of advice, what would you say to someone who's working in audit today and wants to make that switch to fp What advice would you offer to them?
1: So first, I want to tell to anybody who wants to do it, you can do it. I am an example of that because in audit, you build so much basics to work in any type of other organization. And this is one of your first skill. You have a really great working culture and uh, I will say methods. So that you can use in any type of work, independent if you want to move from audit to FPNA. If we look now more specifically at FPNA, what you learn in audit is the finance and accounting background that you need in any type of finance jobs. So by looking at financial statements from different companies in different situations and in different industries, and you have built such a strong basics for other finance jobs that you can use that in FP&A or if you work as in accounting, for example, for another company. Now, if we look at FP&A, what you need in FP&A is how to understand the financial really quickly. And in audit, we have a part that was my favorite part, is the analytics. So how do you understand the figures compared to the past or compared to some trends, external trends, to give assurance to you, to the figures? And this work. Is actually what you are doing as FP&A when you are analyzing the actuals against the budget or against last year. So a part that you do in audit you will also do in FP&A and you can showcase that when you go to interview or when you work that you already did this uh, type of exercise. What you need to learn is the budgeting and forecasting because that's not something you do in audit because you are not in charge of uh, planning the future of the company you audit, because you look at the past. So now it's more mindset to change. Okay, how can I plan figures? Which method I can use for sales? How can I plan headcounts? How do I set up also a budget process with all of the different stakeholders from the company? But as you learn in audit how to make people work in the objective of finishing the audit, getting the input from your clients and from different departments, working with your own team doing the different uh, type of audits. And also within your big four, you have the IT team to use, you have the tax team to use. So you also know how to learn with people. Use that and bring that to FPD.
0: Good advice there. That all makes sense to me. I really like the point you said where, right? audit. you got to be able to quickly analyze the P&L and understand things and trends. So you're looking for patterns to see if there's areas you need to dig into and you know audit, right? And I think that obviously very much applies to FP&A of when you're doing your variance commentary, when you're looking at trends, building your budget, right? So much of it is about understanding where the variances are, why, and you know if they're bad variances, how do you prevent them from continuing? And if they're good, how do you replicate that? How do you make sure that that goes forward? So I could totally see how that audit background could really help with that, you know? So thank you for sharing. That makes sense. And I love the point you said where you can do it, right? Just letting people know that you got to be confident. You may have to work hard. It may take time, but if you're committed, you'll find a way.
1: Yep. And if you on top knows the industry, so you stay within your industry and on top, usually the level of uh, Excel or automation and uh, work methods is much higher in audit firm because the pressure is so high that when you move to the company, you will also have an advantage in comparison with the rest of your colleagues.
0: Great point there. I know audit can be a pretty intense field. You know, you see most people do it for a few years, get that background, and then go on to do something else. Not a lot of people spend their whole career doing audit, right? It's very much a common start for people who do an accounting degree. makes a lot of sense. So earlier in your career, you led a finance transformation project. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience? What was the project and what you learned from that?
1: Yes, at Thales, at the beginning, I was in charge of uh, finance transformation. And the goal, because we had different uh, units that were now consolidated in one big uh, entity, You have to imagine like different types of business were purchased over the past, and the goal was to centralize some uh, functions and to harmonize also the way we work. And of course, you have a pressure from the group, from the shareholders to make sure that the finance function has a percentage of sales, that the costs are on a a setup or target threshold. Having that in mind, we had two projects within the finance transformation. First was a reorganization of the tips. So I worked with the CFO and the finance directors to reorganize the organization chart and to look at how can we save because the main cost of finance is salaries. So if somebody is going to retirement or if somebody wants to move outside, how can we change the organization that we don't have to replace them and still uh, deliver the same value or even more value? So that was the point one. And the second point was, How can we use better tools and harmonized tools, like a common ERP? So we had an SAP project, like a lot of big companies have when they purchase new entities. And how can we use also a new planning and BI tool to centralize information and basically uh, stop that everybody has his own Excel uh, file for planning or for reporting. So those were the two areas. And for me, a great uh, learning phase and that's also the time where I turned myself in the direction of LinkedIn because I needed help for people who already went through this uh, process. I found great uh, people to learn from, and uh, I was able to bring that in our organization, these best practices. And a finance transformation project is not a project from one year. We are still in transformation. So after uh, the project lasted longer, and uh, I had the opportunity to take more operational responsibilities. And what is interesting is when you are on the other side, so when you come from the central team and now you go to the local team or the operational team, well, you see how the project is perceived and the great value of it, but also the, the, the drawbacks. And having the two aspects right now, I would have done maybe the project differently at the beginning.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how whenever you finish a project and look back, right, you did a good job there mentioning, what would you do differently? But what would you say is the key if you were to say there's one or two key things to make a transformation successful? What would you say, you know, from your experience, are those one to two things that you really need to focus on?
1: First, you need to have everybody on board. It's a bit cliche, but change management is not about which tool you are going to use, it's about Mm-mm. having everybody on board that feel that they are part of the change, that they can act in the change, and that basically the new processes and the new tools become theirs. That's something hard if yourself, you are convinced from the day one that you need to change and that the solution is the best one. It's hard to understand why others don't think that way. So you need basically to set up processes and a framework that take you out of your own conviction and face you to these people, to the conviction of other people and make that through communication, you both come to the same point that what is the expectation on the project, how it should be, and that everybody at the end has a common understanding and acceptance on the transformation project. So that will be the top priority of any project. And the second one is what I said at the beginning is make sure you don't think only of the central and the top priorities, but that you bring value to the local and operational units. And for that, you need to bring also uh, operational people into your uh, project team.
0: You you hit the nail on the head with both those. Obviously, change management. You You need leadership. You need everybody from the top down to support it. And then, as I've heard it say, communicate, communicate, and then communicate some more. And then I love the point you made of make sure you're involving the people down at the bottom that are often doing the work and often feel left out on these projects, and they're critical. Because if you don't get them on board, you're going to have problems. doesn't matter the senior leadership likes it. If the end user doesn't want to use it and is pushing back, you know you're not going to get as good results, or you're going to end up killing the project at some point. So I think you highlighted some really key things there, and I totally agree from my experiences. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. Data Rails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FP&A machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. So I want to transition here a little bit. I know over the last year, you've become much more active on LinkedIn. You've really grown your following quite a bit. Could you maybe just start talking a little bit about that experience, what it's been like to be so active on LinkedIn and share your knowledge that way?
1: Yeah, so for me, We are at the time now that we have this LinkedIn tool for available for everybody. But think a few years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, when our grandparents were working, how could they learn? They could go to the university or they could go to a colleague and they could also read books. That's basically the access of knowledge they have. Then came up that you could travel internationally because we have to think that the globalization is new. So now you started to learn from other countries, from other teams from other countries or in the us is big enough that you have different locations so you will learn from other colleagues but you are still limited to your own company and to your own i would say geographical access then came internet where you could exchange with emails with sometimes call best practices within the company and that you could do globally without having to travel and now with linkedin you have access actually to the world independent of where you are, who you are, and in which company you work for. Meaning that today, if somebody in the Philippines wants to access to the CFO of Google, first, he can look at the video of him and learn from him. And second, within like one or two months, if he tries hard enough, he can talk to this guy or to this girl. So and that's what is changing right now. And if this guy in Philippines has also great knowledge to share about how to forecast cash, and he puts it out there and he communicate hard enough and sure enough, then this guy can teach to everybody in the world. And so that's a big change of concept. And I went through the, this, uh, I would say to, through this lane of first being consumer of LinkedIn, then a networker within LinkedIn, where I wanted to learn from people and the right people. So exchange offline in the end to now the state where I see that I have also something to share and to bring to people. And I also see there is a huge demand from young people or people who don't have access to mentorship, who need the help of people like us who have already 15 years experience and can share. And basically what I'm sharing every day with my team and my colleagues, it's with within five to 20 people. Now I can do that to 100,000 people. And for me, my impact then is much bigger if I can do that at the top. And that's why I'm doing that uh, every day.
0: Thank you for sharing. And I really like how you kind of laid out how it's changed over time and how the internet and LinkedIn has made things global. You can reach out to anyone. I mean... Just an example this week, you know, yesterday I was talking to somebody in India. Last week I was in Canada. I've been on calls with someone from the UK, from Denmark, you know, yourself from Germany and multiple states in the US, right? I've talked to people all over the globe, had emails with people in Australia this week. And so it's amazing how the world has just become smaller because of the internet. You can pretty much talk to and communicate and work with. And share knowledge with just about anyone if you want to. So I think that's a great point. It really is amazing to watch. So, you know, next question here. You know, I've noticed this, and others have noticed. Uh, someone, you know, commented about this. You have a real knack for explaining, you know, complex financial concepts to non-finance people in a simple manner. How do you do that? What do you think is the key of making sure you're explaining something in a simple way?
1: Yeah. So I think every day now, and that's if you study a bit the uh, human psychology we are bombarding with a lot of information. So if I want to make an impact and I want that 100,000 people or 10,000 people see my message, I need to show something that is simple enough but still bring value and that I can use all of the tools that the brain can understand to make my impact. So what do I do is first, I make sure that anybody Outside of finance, and independent if they had the background and the knowledge and the academical experience that I had, could understand what I write. And so I always have that in mind. Do I write simple enough that my mother could understand? And so um, that's, I think, the first step. The second step is how can you also make sure that you don't make people bored with your content? Because if you make them bored, then also you are not going to make an impact and people are going to stop after two, three uh, sentences. And so that's why I bring visualization and uh, colors and uh, icons, because that also gives a message without having anything written. And so it's the lever that you can use. And I think mean, we see that every day that there is not only words, but emotion. There are pictures, colors that speak more than words. And that's why also, that's a technique I used when I have a board presentation and I have a PowerPoint to do. I don't only write a sentence. I try to use some visual cues to make sure that my message goes through. And so what I learned doing that for boards, I'm doing that also now on LinkedIn.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I agree with you. Right. When you think of a presentation, visuals, color, you know, if you use things strategically, you know, highlighting certain things, bringing attribution to it, people are going to notice it a lot quicker and it makes it easier to understand. So mixing, you know, words, like you said, keeping them simple. I loved your example of would my mother understand it. Right. Because if you could write for mom or grandma. So to speak, you can write for anyone many times. <laughs> I appreciate that example. And that sounds like you, you know, you've done a very good job. I've noticed a lot of, you know, your content. And I can attest to the fact that it is very easy to understand. Your graphics are very well laid out. You do a fabulous job. And it, it shows in your following. So speaking to that, what advice would you offer to someone who's interested in building a following, sharing their knowledge? whether it's on LinkedIn or just social media in general, what would be your advice if there's maybe somebody listening, a finance person that wants to start doing some of that?
1: Let's take three points to be simple. The first point, you need to know what you want to write about and for which people. And if you know that, then write it down, make it in several clusters. So if we take my example, one day I want to talk about accounting, one day I want to talk about career in finance, another day I want to talk about financial analysis, and then another day about budgeting. So if you lay these clusters out, then it's already much simpler for you to know what you're going to write about. And this problem of the blank page uh, paralysis goes away. So that's the first point. The second point, to come back to what I say, you need to make sure that your message goes through. So don't write like you would write uh, in a book. Write something that you would like to see. And think like when you're on social media and you don't write the same way than in email. When you're in social media, you don't write the same way than in a newspaper. Because basically people are going to scroll and either they stop on your content or they continue. So if you write a great piece of content and you have a great value and you work hard, they don't stop and they don't see your content, then all of your effort is for nothing. And that brings me to the third one is use not only the text, but the visual cues to stop people and bring them to your content. And also to bring messages that are maybe hard to explain with words, but could be more simple to bring with visual or graphics or uh, infographics. So those three points, one, know what you want to write and for whom. Second, make it really simple in your writing. And third, use uh, visual cues.
0: So I've got that, you know, one, know your audience, Focus on making your writing simple and use visual cues. That's great advice, especially social media, right? You got a second to catch someone's eye. It's not like someone picked up your book and is planning on reading it. You got a chapter or two before they'll decide, hey, I want to keep reading, right? Very few people shut down a book at the first word. But when we're scrolling social media, you often skip over something in less than a second. You just kind of keep scrolling. You You have very little time to catch somebody's attention. So that's really good advice. So, you know, next question here, we're going to get to the part where we have a few standard questions we like to ask people. And so the first is, as you look back over your career, you know, the last 15 years or so, what's the accomplishment you're most proud of? So if I had you in a job interview and I asked you that question, I said, tell me the, you know, professional accomplishment you're most proud of from your career. What are you going to tell me and why? For me,
1: there are two main accomplishments. One is over my whole career is how I could help more junior colleagues to grow within their job. How could I basically teach them and give them everything I learned, but also uh, allow them to think by themselves, allow them in their career to take the right decisions. So how I brought mentorship and coaching all along my career, because that you cannot, uh, I will say, is not financial. You are not going to earn money with that. But for my values as a human and uh, also my family values, I think helping others be better is one of the most important things. And so that's something I'm the most proud and I want to continue to do that. And now I have the chance also to do that uh, more globally. And the second one is actually was one of my last uh, experience where we were in a phase of change within finance. So I was the head of finance uh, and controlling for manufacturing location. And so we had changes within finance, but also we had changes within the manufacturing side. And so with the management team and also me within my finance team, I had to deal with these changes. And we brought really both the finance team, but also the side in a better state than it was when we took over with my other colleagues from management. And um, I had the chance to work with really exceptional people. I learned a lot from them. And that's one of my biggest accomplishments. I had to make some concession personally because I had to travel one half hour every day to go there and come back. But that was a great experience. And uh, I think both I brought something to the company, but I also learned a lot from it. Thank
0: you for sharing both those. I really love the first one of just, you know, helping junior people making a difference. I do a lot of training nowadays and, I love when you see the light bulb go on, so to speak. You see their eyes get excited and like, oh, wow, this will save me so much time. Like, I didn't know you could do that. It's really rewarding when you know you help someone develop. And I know I get people on LinkedIn that have you know thanked me for my content or people for the podcast. And I know it always feels really good. So I can imagine you know, you've had those same experiences. It's so rewarding when somebody's like, hey, you know, what you shared today really helped me. I really appreciate it. So, you know, just great things there that you mentioned. So, you know, next question, kind of flipping up from accomplishment, you know, failures. We've all dealt with them. I'm a big believer of the statement, you know, failure kind of leads to success or you don't have failures, you have learning experiences. But if you look back over your career, can you think of in a failure where maybe an analysis went wrong, you know, something went wrong with the budget implementation project? You know, what was that? And what did you learn from that failure? What was the takeaway?
1: Yeah, so I think in any experience I had that came and I learned a lot from it, is when you wait too long to communicate bad surprises or problems. And so now, I mean, I have no problem to escalate to anybody I can talk and call anybody. I'm not afraid of management uh, above me or I'm not afraid of another colleague or whatever. But at the beginning of your career, when you are junior, First, you have a hard time to know what is important and not important. That's the first one. But second, if you make a mistake yourself, you're afraid to be caught and um, and yell that or yeah, to show that you were working bad. But what was good is I got people and I was lucky with that because you can get unlucky. I was with people who basically explained me that it was more important to communicate early on your, the problem and your failures than to keep it for yourself. That if you keep it for yourself, it's going to be a bigger problem after that you are not going to to get rid of, and you would be rewarded if you communicate early, rather than punished. And so now I try also to teach that to other people to explain, okay, mistakes happen. Most important is that you come up with the problem and that we find a solution rather than finger pointing and trying to find who is the guilty person who made a mistake, because it's not going to change anything. And it's not forward-looking, so I think that I learned a lot, and it saved me now and uh, in the past a lot of troubles by taking my phone or writing the right email when I knew there was a big problem.
0: I love that you know, just own the mistakes. In addition to that, when you see a problem, escalate it. Don't be afraid. And two examples I love for my career really about owning mistakes. One's for my career and one's one I heard. There was a CEO at IBM. One of the VPs had made a big mistake and it ended up costing the company $10 million. And he got called to the CEO's office and the CEO said something. He looked at him and goes, I'll pack my bags. And the CEO goes, why would you pack your bags? He goes, well, I just cost the company $10 million. You're going to fire me, right? He goes, why would I fire you? I just paid $10 million for you to learn a lesson. Like, I'm not going to fire you now. And I just love that mentality. You know, not to say there aren't times when someone makes a mistake that that may have to be the option. But if you always focus on it, if they're willing to learn and willing to help, there's so much value that can come from those type of mistakes, right? That guy isn't going to make that mistake again. He's going to be a better employee. And so that's the first one. The second one, I was sitting in a meeting one time, and we had a new CFO, and someone had built a forecast, and they had made a mistake in the forecast, and they didn't want to own up to it. And so they were coming up with all these different things explaining it. And The CFO was just totally confused. And I didn't know what was going on. I got talking to the guy and he told me, we don't want to mention what it really is. And this is why I'm like, just own it and let's move on. Like, this is silly. We're just wasting everybody's time. You know, and finally he came forward and the CFO wasn't that mad. He was just, he was more frustrated. Like, why didn't you just tell me that up front? Don't play games with me. And so there's just so much value in learning to communicate bad news up front. And just owning mistakes, just admit it, say what you're going to do to correct it, and move on. You know, if you have good leadership, they'll always understand.
1: And actually, owning your mistake, I found the best way to also for you, mentally to get rid of this pressure and this guiltiness. Once you go and say, "I own it," I will find a solution, or I will find a solution with you. I need your help. That's the best way that you turn yourself from the negativity to the positivity. And people will be first impressed that you have the humility and the courage to own it and to say it. So it's recognized and really appreciated. And second, they need that, everybody needs that it's fixed. So if you volunteer to fix it, then they are so happy because they know, okay, the mistake could have happened also to anybody else, but at least now I have a solution or somebody who is taking care of it. So basically, if you always have this mindset, you're going to go further in your career because people want to work with this kind of people.
0: Agree, 100% agree. That's some really good points you made there is one, it helps with that negativity. Two, people want to work with somebody who owns it and you know they're not going to throw others under the bus, they're not going to hide things. You know you're just going to get the truth from them. There's a lot of value in that. So I appreciate that. So next question I want to ask here, this is one we like to ask everybody, a little bit more of a personal question. What is something unique about you, something we wouldn't find online that you can tell our audience?
1: Well, I was a DJ for weddings and events and birthdays. I started that when I was 15. It was my first job before my career because my dad was also doing that since he was 18 or 20. So we had all of the setup at home. As a kid, Like he was bringing me to the weddings. I was sleeping in his truck while he was still DJing. So I saw all of that, all of my life, all of the events, all of the great parties, and it was a better job than working at McDonald's, you know? I don't have anything for people because I also did like handy jobs, and but it's a hard job because you have to work long hours, but it's a really rewarding job. You participate in one of the best days of people who are getting married or people who have their 50s birthday or 20 years birthday. and so. Yeah, working when everybody is having fun and being the guy who make it happen is kind of uh, fun. And uh, sometimes I miss that. So now with the technology, I can do that almost just with my phone. And at uh, uh, the last New Year's party, I did that and everybody stayed up until five o'clock. So it was <laughs> a bit exceptional. But yeah, that's something that not a lot of people know. And uh, I learned a lot from it as well. Because when you have to talk, also take the microphone in front of 500 people, you need to know what you have to say and to have the confidence to do it.
0: Yeah, that sounds like great experience, you know, being a DJ. When, yeah, like you said, you have to take the microphone, you get to see people in a happy moment and play a part of that. And I kind of had a laugh that you mentioned weddings because I worked as a server for a number of years, banquets for weddings, receptions, you know, making sure the food, taking care of all that. And my brother did it as well. And Kind of funny story. I think you'll laugh about. The audience will appreciate. So I was probably, might have been thirty at the time. Brother is late twenties. We're both single, and we're at a a good friend of ours' wedding. And we're sitting there at the table, and we're like critiquing the food and the placemats and the settings, and you know, kind of going through all this. And I look at him, okay, here's two basically thirty year old single guys, and we're like, what's wrong with us? But we had both worked in the industry. And so it's just kind of funny how we, you know, all of a sudden kind of went back to that mode of, okay, how's everything set up and what does it look like? And so I can, you know, that was a great experience, you know, different, obviously different than being DJ, but those are a lot of fun events to be a part of. So I can relate to that a little bit. So thank you for sharing that. You know, next, I know you've launched some courses and some offerings on your website. You know, you mentioned them on LinkedIn Aim toward finance and FP&A for professionals. Could you maybe talk a little bit of who your courses are designed for and what you have learned from creating courses?
1: Yeah, great question, especially on the learning. So, like I said before, I could coach and teach to a lot of young people from my teams or people who were coming in and didn't have the experience in FPNA and coaching. But a lot of people now are asking me that on LinkedIn how do I move to FPNA? or I just got a job off in fp where do I start? And basically, instead of answering every day and just like giving a few words, I thought, okay, let's package that in one course where I record myself and go through all of the methods, principles, but also what should you do after in your company? What should you say to your management? What should you do as a finance person to help your operational business partner? So I package that in videos, and it's basically, if somebody were joining my team today, I will tell him, okay, watch this. And I will save like six months of learning because everything is in these eight hours. And you can always come back if you have a specific topic on budgeting, if you have a topic on reporting, you can always watch back these videos, use the templates, uh, use the PDF to basically get straight away at uh, what are the best practices and uh, then implement that for your work. That's what I had in mind. And is basically teach the younger me and give him everything that I learned the last 15 years uh, to make sure that the first day he can work. And of course, you need to make your own experience. But I figure out that a lot of things that I learned, I didn't know that I had to learn at the beginning. And that's also what is helping the course people with is to know, okay, you have to learn all of that if you want to be comfortable as an FPNA person. If you want to move to FPNA and know what to talk about in interviews, or if you just started in FPNA, that's a great course for you. And on your second question, so what did I learn? Well, it's like every day when I have to post something on LinkedIn. I think it's one of the best uh, way to learn something is to teach it to somebody. So first, I still had to review all of the concepts to make sure that what I was talking about was strong and I could explain it in simple words. Also, I created Almost uh, 300 pages of content, of information that I can reuse when I want to share something. And um, if we forget about finance and all of that, just making the marketing, recording videos, speaking on a video, understanding what the people need, those are a lot of skills that I developed during this production of the course.
0: Yeah, you definitely learn a lot of skills. I can relate to that. I just am um, in the process of finalizing a course right now. And so. A lot of good advice there, and I like how you mentioned teaching what I wish I would have known 15 years ago, right? All those things you've learned over years, trying to shorten that learning time frame, help people take advantage of what others have already learned so they don't have to go through all the pain we did, making it a little simpler for them. So here I'm getting to what's probably my favorite question, because I love to see the different answers. What is your favorite Excel formula, function,
1: feature, and why? So my favorite one is the VLOOKUP, because that's the first function I learned in audit. I have to tell you a small story. When I joined PwC, I thought, oh, I'm a great Excel guy. I know how to excel. I will outperform, blah, blah, blah. Then I sat down my first day next to a person. I think it was a girl who was there just since two years or something like that. And I watched her doing her job and I was like, OK, I'm not an expert. And the first thing you, I learned is uh, VLOOKUP, because you have to think like before Excel, people were taking two documents and comparing them with each other. And what we're doing is auditing uh, funds, uh, mutual funds, and what, what you have to do, for example, one of the tests is to take the pricing they use to uh, make the valuation of the portfolio and compare that against an external pricing, so Bloomberg or any other uh, source of information. And so if you do that manually, you are going to take ages. If you do a VLOOKUP based on the eyes in of the, the stock, you just look what is the price and you convert and where you have difference above 1% for people who are still doing it, then you have to ask uh, your client why they use something else. Yeah, so it still remains my favorite one, but in between I learned some if and Index Match and most of the time they are better to use than VLOOKUP. Because often I start with VLOOKUP and then I'm like, oh, I think here a if will be better because I have more lines to add up or the index match will be maybe better. So still always challenge your own uh, learning because maybe that what you learn one day can be false or to improve a few years after.
0: No, thank you for sharing. And VLOOKUP, I think that's one of many of us is kind of a favorite because it's one of the first ones we learned and it's incredibly valuable. But there are many different ways you can solve it now beyond VLOOKUP. I mean, I asked chat GPT to solve it. It gave me VLOOKUP first. And I said, how many different ways can I solve this? And I think it gave me like eight. And then I asked it other ways. By the end, I think I had 13 different ways you could solve it. And you know, most of them I had known, a few of them, I learned one that I'm like, oh, I would never thought of doing it that way. So you can always challenge yourself and find different ways to do it. I think that's great advice. Well, we're just about out of time here. So I have just two wrap-up questions for you. The first, if someone was starting their career today in FP&A, what is the one piece of advice you would give them?
1: One piece of advice would be that everything about finance, you will learn next to your colleagues, you will learn online, or maybe you have learned a lot at school. What you didn't learn and you should learn and must learn is what your operational department is doing every day. Because if you, every day you are going to stay in your office or within your finance team, and if you stay in your silo, the potential of value you are going to add is really limited. If you go and either like spend one day or just go do visits and make network with your operational departments, that's where you are going to get a lot of ideas of what they need. We are going to connect the dots between what you see every day, the finance, figures and what happens the operational work. And so if you want to be more impactful in your company and also have a better career, make sure you get this great connection with the operational departments that you spend time there and that you have a good understanding of how they work.
0: Great advice. Couldn't agree more of learning operational. That's a, you know, a great one for people to do. So last question here, if people want to learn more about you, where can they go? How can they learn more about you? And what's the best way to connect with
1: you? So there are three ways they can learn about me. First, uh, on LinkedIn, I share everyday uh, practical advice for finance uh, people. The second one, I have a website where I also post more long-form content. So it's nicolaboucher.online. And the third one is my newsletter, where uh, every week I also share long-form content on a specific problem. For example, last week I sent out to my subscribers how to be audit ready. So, how to prepare yourself and your company when you get audited, how to organize your team, how to prepare the document, how to communicate with your auditors. I write based on my experience because I was an auditor, I am now somebody being audited. And so, I share that because this type of email that's what I would like to have had when uh, I started work. And if anybody has also the ambition to move to FPNA or just join FPNA, well, check out my course because. There are a lot of practical help there, and you don't get that everywhere. Or if you want to get that everywhere, you have to spend a lot of time to search for that online. So contact me if you have any question about the program I have, and I will be always happy to to help all of you. Well, thank you, Nicholas.
0: I appreciate that. And it was great having you on the show. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll we'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Nicholas.
1: Yeah, thank you, Paul. Uh, I think it's great that you have that for all of the finance professional. Like I said, we are really lucky now in this world, that we have access to a lot of people. So thank you for organizing that uh, every day uh, and uh, make all of these great interviews.
0: Well, thank you. I, I love doing it. It's a lot of fun, and I appreciate you being on the show. Hopefully, we'll get to have you on again sometime soon.
1: We'll do. Thanks. Bye.